day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have decided to join us today. It's Constitution Day and Citizenship Day here in the U.S., and a little later in the show, I am really excited to talk with two brand new American citizens who came here from other countries about why they decided to move here and become Americans. You don't want to miss that conversation. I'm pretty sure it is going to move you quite a bit to hear these two stories. But first, members of Congress are returning to Washington, D.C. after more than a month at home. The House and Senate are mired in all kinds of policy and spending debates right now. Democrats are trying to win consensus inside their own majorities around the massive $3.5 trillion spending bill and how to pay for it. And we're still waiting to see whether they're going to pass a substantial infrastructure plan. I should say we're all really hoping that they will pass that substantial infrastructure plan. But there are plenty of other important pieces of legislation moving through the Capitol as well, including a measure that supporters say could transform older industrial towns and cities like Detroit and Warren and Dearborn, Pontiac and Lansing. This provision, which cleared the House Ways and Means Committee this week, would provide $5 billion over five years to communities that have suffered chronic economic hardship and job loss due to trade-related events. It's likely to make its way into the larger budget reconciliation bill that's moving forward, and it's a really innovative approach to bringing some relief to old industrial cities. Michigan Congressman Dan Kildy sits on the Ways and Means Committee and joins us now to talk about this bill and everything else going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me back on, Stephen. So uh, first, talk a bit about this provision that made its way through Ways and Means this week and what it would mean for Michigan cities like Detroit, Warren, and Pontiac. Well, it's a really important uh, initiative. It's actually one that I wrote. So this is legislation that my staff and I have been working on uh, really for a couple of years. And then we were able to get it through the Ways and Means Committee just recently as part of this larger package. So here's what it what it provides for. It would give an opportunity for these older industrial cities who have borne the brunt of big trade-related changes in their economy. You know, the shift, for example, of manufacturing uh, to other states or to other parts of the world, most importantly, to Mexico, to China, to other places, has really had a disparate impact on communities. The idea here is to empower these communities to develop an economic development plan to take them to the 21st century economy by investing in those communities. Uh, it's really about empowering local decision makers and then supporting those plans through whatever they come up with. It's a very flexible uh, set of plans. It's a, you know, in some communities, what that would mean is a plan to remove obsolete blighted facilities to remediate brownfields. In some cases, it might be really specific to you know, investing in a certain type of industry that they think is critical to connecting them to the new economy. These are communities that are often left behind. And what we want to do is recognize that and disproportionately help those places catch up to where everybody else is. So that's basically what the, what the plan um, would do. And, and we would 
this case, commit a billion dollars a year for five years to uh, to put this into motion. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to know that this trade issue, which is part of the reason that cities like Detroit and Pontiac and uh, uh, the other places that would be covered by the bill are are struggling, is a real sensitive point. It is a sensitive point inside the Democratic Party, uh, f- number one, but, but it's also a sensitive point in the larger national politics. Uh, how do we make up for uh, trade disadvantages that get heaped on uh, urban centers um, that, that also create all kinds of economic activity for other people. I mean, there is this kind of natural tension uh, in trade policy that, that leaves us at the, the, the short end uh, of the stick too often. Uh, this, is, this is one of the first things that I've come across uh, that, that really says we've got we've to specifically make up for those losses in these communities. That's the, that's the point. It's a really important one. We know that ultimately, in general, we need to be engaged in the global economy. That's just reality. We don't get to decide if there's a global economy. There is one, and we have to engage it for our long-term well, economic well-being. But we also have to be honest and say that when we do that, some communities do better than others. And the, the whole idea, I mean, this is called trade adjustment assistance. We have to make these adjustments to offset the fact that while some communities will do extraordinarily well through this, pro- this process of globalization over the last few decades, some get hit pretty hard. Let's just help them get back to the starting line so that as we go through these periods of economic growth, everybody gets to participate. Too many of these communities have structural problems that make it difficult for them to do that. And that's what this is intended to get at. And, you know, I mentioned blight and abandonment because as you and I have talked over the years, this has been a focus of a lot of my work even long before I came to Congress. This concept that I now have been able to get moving in Congress is really born of my experience working in these very cities for decades and continuing to realize that what they need is a plan, and they need some resources to execute the plan. And then they can kind of get back to what they used to be, this really high, a really highly productive community that contributes to the economy and not one that is always in a position of needing help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the bigger $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill. We're hearing now that Democrats want to fund that bill, at least in part, by rolling back some of the Trump-era tax cuts. The Ways and Means Committee that you serve on is also working on legislation to achieve that. Talk about what you expect that to look like, how much revenue it might uh, generate, and how how likely it is that Democrats can do something like that and not pay a, a pretty steep price uh, uh, at the election next uh, next november well i think if people completely understand it and don't fall victim to sort of the antagonists using talking points that are not true i think we'll be fine but you know the politics of this stuff can't be the driver of good or bad policy you know, we're, we're going to have to manage the politics of it but we start, have to start by doing the right thing 
if we're going to make these big investments, we know we have to pay for them. And, and I, I just saw Kevin McCarthy on television saying that we're not paying for it, that we're borrowing money. This is the point. We're not going to borrow money to do all this big stuff that we want to do. We're going to pay for it. And we're going to do so not by going back to where we were before the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, there's some compromise in this. Um, you know, there's been talk about what are we going to do about capital gains taxation? I could argue for a very high capital gains tax rate. This is only a modest increase. We go from 15 to 20, not back up to 35. Um, so the bottom line on this is people making less than $400,000 a year, which let's, let's face it, is the vast majority of the American population. They won't see a tax increase. People who do really well uh, will have to pay their fair share. Uh, people who make more than $5 million a year, for example, will have a 3% additional tax on top of the top rate under our plan. We think those who have done extraordinarily well should be congratulated, but also should contribute more to making sure we have a civil society. The basic elements of a community are intact. We think that's fair. And that's why I think this, if well understood, will not only achieve our goals, but will also be accepted and embraced by the American people, if it's well understood. Yeah. I'm talking with Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township, uh, about a number of things going on in Washington, D.C. right now as uh, members of Congress get back to work after a month at home. Uh, we've talked about... Uh, a new approach to helping cities that are hard hit by trade policies, cities like Detroit and Warren and Pontiac, uh, that will be part of the uh, budget reconciliation bill that uh, Democrats are considering. Uh, we're also talking about how to pay for uh, that budget uh, reconciliation and, and the things that are in it. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to talk about the infrastructure bill that is still being debated uh, on, on Capitol Hill uh, and a couple of other issues. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, call and tell us what questions you have for Congressman Dan Kildee. Uh, as our representatives get back to work in Washington. What do you think of congressional Democrats' push to pass this $3.5 trillion spending bill without any Republican uh, support, uh, something that almost seems inevitable uh, in these days in Washington in terms of uh, the way things are so closely divided? Uh, also, give us a call and tell us what kind of things you would like to see Congress investing in? Are there things that you think should be on the congressional agenda that uh, maybe you haven't seen? Also, give us a call and let us know what you think of the infrastructure bill. Uh, we've had quite a summer with, uh, <laughs> with infrastructure trouble here uh, in Metro Detroit. Uh, do, you, do you support the approach that the Democrats are taking uh, to this bill? And uh, do you look forward to the idea that uh, perhaps it could make things 
just a little better for us uh, with the, the advances in climate change. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, I want to, before we get to, to listeners, talk about uh, this infrastructure bill, Dan. Um, we've been talking about it a long time in Washington, but it does seem to be making progress. It's coming together, and these things are tough because uh, you cannot count on uh, I think, honest Republican cooperation to discuss these things. I mean, it is a really highly politically charged issue uh, all the way across the board uh, with them. But but give us a sense of where we are and uh, how likely we are to see that come together this fall. Well, I mean, we've made a lot of progress. You know, it seemed like uh, for four years, every week was infrastructure week, and we'd never see a bill. We would never put anything you know, on the table because of this highly partisan environment. And the fact that, you know, and I don't like to be overly partisan, frankly, but it's been really frustrating when we saw President Trump, as I said, every week was infrastructure week, except they never produced a bill. We finally have produced a bill. And we have some Republican support. It was done in a bipartisan fashion. I don't think it's big enough, to be frank. I mean, it's, it's not enough to solve the problem, but it's a step. And I'm willing to take that step, knowing that if we can do this, then maybe we can do more. I think that piece of it is the more certain piece. Uh, the, 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 the actual bipartisan infrastructure legislation, I think, has a decent shot. The problem is this. It's bipartisan in the Senate. But so far, there's no commitment of House Republicans to support it. Um, I can speculate about why that is, but you know, they just haven't really made a decision that they're going to even support a bipartisan effort here. That's the one hiccup. Uh, but, but, you know, th- here's, the, here's the, the, the challenge, is that not doing this doesn't make the problem go away. And that's the issue that is, I think, has to be... Uh, has to be addressed. You mentioned the infrastructure needs right in um, Metro Detroit area. That's going to happen again with with uh, the changing climate, with you know more and more severe storms, and with a water and uh, sewer stormwater infrastructure not intended for that kind of volume. It's just going to keep happening unless we fix it. We can't fix it for free. We can't do it with volunteers. We're going to have to pay for it. Hmm. And so my view is we got to take that medicine or we're going to pay in other ways. And right now we're paying with a lot of misery. Hmm. Uh, let's get to the phones here. Rhonda in Ypsilanti, what's on your mind? Are you there, Rhonda? I'm here, yes. Hi. Um, Hi. I really appreciate, you know, being there talking about this. Um, there's two points that I want to make. One is infrastructure. You know, as, an, as a nation, we are long overdue for this. We're actually quite behind other nations, especially when it comes to high-speed rail and things like that. The other point that I wanted to make was about just this idea of trying to appeal to the better angels in the GOP party. I'm sorry, they don't exist. We've seen 
over the past four years or more that they are clearly willing to sacrifice the good of the nation for power grabs in their party. And I find myself being frustrated when I feel like I've voted for Democrats to step up and like really be bold and be mm. firm, as firm with them as they've been with the Democratic Party. And it just feels like, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to appeal to the intellect of people and the truth of the matter is that people make political decisions very emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so Democrats want to talk to people's intellect, but I hate to say it. I don't think it's there for that. <laughs> you don't think so, it's working, Rhonda? <laughs> I don't think it's working. I, okay. really I, don't. I, I, I appreciate the call and uh, the very blunt assessment of uh, things in Washington. Uh, Dan, this was something I wanted to, to bring up anyway, which is not just how you work with Republicans, which you and I talk about quite a bit, but how do you work inside the Democratic Party to hold this majority together, not just for these votes, uh, but to be able to keep that majority after next fall? And you can't, I think, talk about that subject without talking about Joe Manchin, who is a senator from West Virginia, is uh, uh, a moderate Democrat uh, who is not a Uh, who's not a liberal and would say he's not uh, a liberal, but is a member of the party, votes with the party on most things, but in some cases has to appeal to voters in his state who are pretty conservative. Talk about navigating all of that and whether Rhonda's right that you can't really appeal uh, to some of these these interests, that you have to just come down hard with uh, with your votes and your majority and get done what you can. Yeah, she makes a good point, and I share some of that frustration. Uh, it seems like there's an increasingly small number of Republicans that come from sort of the old school, let's work things out camp of the Republican Party. I was really sad to see um, Representative Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio yesterday decide that he's not running again because he just he's a Republican, and he, he, he just can't take it. He can't tolerate this monolithic, pro, almost fealty to Donald Trump. And he's basically being tossed out of the Republican Party because he says Joe Biden won the election. How do, you, how do we work with that? You know, that's the, that's the hard part. But and on your larger point, you know, we have a lot of diversity of thought in the, in the Democratic Party. And, and my, my view, and I know this irritates some, but my view is, We've got to find the boldest common denominator and take that step, even if that means it's not as progressive a policy as I would write if I were doing it myself. Hmm. But I think too many, in even in my own party, are of the view that they would rather have a noble defeat than a marginal uh, step of progress. Mm-hmm. They would rather be able to go home and talk about what they fought for and how righteous they were and pat themselves on the back for their righteousness, having done nothing for the people that they profess to love so much. My view is, you know, let's get something done, even if that means some of our supporters are irritated with us. Our responsibility is not to be popular. Our responsibility is to get the work done. And if that means making a compromise in order to take a step in the right direction, that's what we should do. I am frustrated with Senator Manchin, however, and Senator Sinema, basically because I think it's dangerous 
to hide behind a relic of Jim Crow, which is the filibuster, mm-hmm. to not take up voting rights, to not take up, you know, these questions that are fundamental questions of principle in a democracy, and to hide behind something that's not in the Constitution, some concoction that was intended to keep um, civil rights and, you know, basically, you know, a relic of the Jim Crow era to keep from taking steps toward a more inclusive society so that basically then white Southern Democrats could hold on to their power. Yeah, that's not defensible. That's just not defensible. It's not, it's not an argument over big ideas. It's hiding behind a relic of the past to prevent from having that argument. And I think that's got to end. Yeah. So, I mean, I know we've got to let you go, uh, but but quickly, are you in favor of Democrats just ending the filibuster, just just doing away with it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Because the the one argument that has been advanced that I, that I want to address is this argument that Democrats, some Democrats make, that if we do that, we'll pay a price because Republicans will do it to us. They do it to us anyway. They pretend the filibuster doesn't exist when it serves their purpose. They jam through, and now you know we're using the same tool with this reconciliation package, but they made the biggest tax cut in the history of the country that benefited the top 1% with 83% of the benefits by ignoring the filibuster. They have placed a new majority on the United States Supreme Court, a lifetime appointment. Mm-hmm by ignoring the filibuster. And so the idea that Democrats have to hold themselves to the standard that says the filibuster is in the way, but when Republicans are in power, they pretend it's there until they have to do something they want to do, and then they just ignore it. I think, to me, it's, it's laughable that, that we think about it as some sort of an institution that has to be protected, when, number one, it's not. It's not in the Constitution. And secondly, Republicans ignore it when they choose to. Why? Why are we holding on to it when it does not serve our purposes? It's mm. it's outrageous. Okay, Congressman Dan Kelby, Democrat from Flint Township, represents Michigan's fifth district in uh, Congress. Always great to have you here on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, we are going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to have this really, really special conversation with two new Americans on Constitution Day and Citizenship Day. We'll talk about what it means to them to be Americans and about their decision to commit to this American experiment that includes all of us. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 